0: Welcome to Real GM Radio, I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Really excited I got to talk with Ian Levy, he has a new site, Nylon Calculus, which is part of the Hardwood Peroxys and Basketball Network. You may know him from Hickory High, he does work for 538 and numerous other sites. I joke that he's almost everywhere at this point. And I wanted to have him on to talk about the new site, to talk about what he wanted to do with it. And then we talked about the off-season, what's happened with that, a couple of the transactions that he liked and how the things fit together. We talked a little bit about the possibility of Kevin Love on the Warriors. I railed a little bit on that, and I'm happy he indulged me. And then we talked about some of the teams that we're excited to see in the upcoming season, and we go through a number of teams. Conversation runs about an hour. It was so much fun to have him on. It's great to have somebody who we can just bounce ideas off of each other. We did very little prep in terms of what we wanted to talk about. We just basically said, you know, we're going to talk about the off season and talk about this talking about the site and everything else and then we went and we ran for about an hour and it was it was a blast and i hope you enjoyed it half as much as i enjoyed recording it because it was so much fun
1: thanks much for coming on thanks for having me daniel happy to be back
0: there have been some changes since the last time <laughs> last time you were on yeah. and i think the best place to start is with nylon calculus
1: yeah, so last time I was on, I, I think I was still uh, was still running Hickory High, um, and it was the move was probably already in the works at that point. But uh, since then, um, Hickory High, although it's, the site is still up, will stay up for a while until we get it all archived. We're done there, and then I've helped launch Nylon Calculus, which will be the the basketball analytics site, part of the Hardwood Paroxysm Basketball Network at FanSided, and then all the writers from Hickory High, the people who wrote stat stuff, have come with me to Nylon Calculus and pretty much everybody else have moved on to either Harvard Paroxysm or some of these other little satellite sites that are going to be in the network. So, yeah, it's, it's been exciting. first couple of weeks at, at Nylon Calculus have, have gone great. We've gotten a good response, so it's, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Do you have a vision at this point for, let's say, what you would want to be different from Hickory High? Because obviously that was a great success and helped propel this, or just a vision for where the site's going to end up long term?
1: Well, the biggest thing I think that'll be different from Hickory High is that we're going to be really focused on analytics, whereas Hickory High, you know, we had some people who did stat stuff, but we, you know, we sort of did all, all kinds of all kinds of content there. And this is really going to be focused on on analytics. And you know, my vision is a little muddy. There are some specific things that we've kind of talked about as a staff that are really important to us, and how those manifest. You know, I'm not I'm not totally sure we're 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 going to play around this summer and and see where we are when the season starts, but. Some of the things that are really important to us, we want to have that sort of high-level research paper type content where we're working with big data sets and we're looking for, for sort of bigger insights about the game and the league and and um, inefficiencies and in how different teams are playing. We want to have some of the the sort of smaller – narrative stuff still driven by statistics but you know we want to be looking at trends with players and teams and and things of that nature and then the one that's really important to me is i want to make sure that there's um that the site is sort of an educational resource i've talked about this a few different places i feel like we might have even talked about this last time i was on the podcast but you know the the basketball analytics it's place sort of in the basketball blogosphere and basketball media it's become so ingrained that i think people take for granted the fact that everybody is in the same place. You know, I, I, I've said this a few different times, but when I started four years ago, it was like common practice. Every time you mentioned true shooting percentage in an article, it was common practice to link to the glossary at Basketball Reference you know, so so people knew what you were talking about and now four years later it's just assumed that everybody knows what true shooting percentage is and I'm not sure everybody really does know what true shooting percentage is or even if they have a vague idea of what it is I'm not sure they really understand what it's explaining about a player or a team and what it's maybe not explaining about a player or a team and so you know we have plans to, to build a really comprehensive glossary that goes beyond just defining the stats and explaining the formulas but talking about uh, what they explain what they don't explain and then, um, the idea that, that all of these statistics are sort of a progression of mathematical models, that each sort of new statistic as it was introduced, it was designed to address something that was missing or not captured in a previous statistic. So I want to I want to help people see that sort of statistical lineage, for lack of a better word, so that when they have a question or a problem they want to solve, they can sort of follow this progression of stats until they find, you know, the right thing to help them figure out what they're what they're trying to look at.
0: I think that's a really good point, and that's also something that I, I'm guessing we both have familiarity with fan graphs, that I think that one of the things that the Internet could be better at, and I, I'm trying to help do this with Mid-Level Exceptional, is having a persistent resource that kind of explains a question whenever somebody gets to it. Yeah. Because one of the challenges with media in general is that you're often you're responding to stimuli. You're responding to something happening. You're responding to something like that. And the idea of persistent resources and basically saying, okay, you know, a year from now, somebody's going to need to look at this. And that's why Larry Kuhn's incredible CBA FAQ is amazing, is that it's one of those persistent resources. And the idea of having that for basketball analytics is really nice. Because then also, if you're somebody who wants to be in the conversation and wants to get up to speed, you have a way to do that as opposed to picking – through a lot of other stuff, which in a lot of sports fandom is what you have to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure somebody could still, you know, I'm sure you can still find the true shooting percentage uh, definition and and formula at Basketball Reference, but it might take uh, reading a handful of articles in different places and getting bits and pieces of sort of context wrapped around it for somebody to really understand what that is, and so we're hoping we can put that all in one place. One of the other things in that sort of education vein that I'm really excited about is we started a series called What We Know, and we've just had two pieces that I've written so far, but we have a few more coming in the next few weeks, and the idea there is sort of the same thing, catching people up on on basketball analytics, but it's not the formulas, it's the big ideas, so um, we don't want to get bogged down in explaining specific statistics to those people. We want to talk about the big ideas, the big things that have come out of the analytics movement that have, have changed the way basketball's played and understood. And so you know the first two we did or the first two that I, I've written was was the idea that efficiency matters and the idea that shot selection matters. And just sort of what that means for for the game that you're watching and how how it's different from four or five or six, seven years ago.
0: That also fits in with an idea that I think is a little bit different with our experiences because I cover I cover a team a lot, and so you get a lot of if you want to call it old media, uh-huh. new media there, and one of the things that's interesting about the way that, if you want to call it old media, see the analytics movement is this idea that it deals with absolutes, which it, in my opinion, doesn't. Yeah, I, like, the, like this idea that every mid-range shot is a bad shot somehow got into analytics <laughs> when that's absolutely not true.
1: Yeah. You know, there was actually an interesting article that Jack Moore wrote it at uh, The Cauldron today about, about mid-range two-pointers. And I, I thought it was a really well-written article. I'm a big fan of The Cauldron. I'm a big fan of Jack's stuff but i thought it miscast i thought a little bit it it miscast the analytics mo- movement as sort of demonizing long two pointers and there are there are there are certainly segments of basketball analytics and i would say it's the more sort of on the amateur side people who are writing on the web as opposed to to decision makers who deal in absolutes but jack's piece was kind of about the Portland Trailblazers and Lamarcus Aldridge and about how they they use the long two pointer and how it works for their offense and so you know I think in the most part for n b a decision makers analytics are about putting things together with the pieces that you have you know the the shot selection pattern that the Houston Rockets have used the past two years is so extreme uh, in terms of avoiding those mid-range jump shots but I feel like that is in, in large part a reaction to their personnel if they had Dirk Nowitzki or LaMarcus Aldridge they would take mid-range two-pointers and they would shape their offense differently so you know I think there's this yeah that, that misunderstanding that, that analytics is providing absolutely lessons for how basketball can be played and really analytics is providing lessons about how to utilize what you have to get the most out of it. And
0: on that point the other thing that I was thinking about, I can't remember, I would love to give credit to who did it, it might have been Tom Haverstrow, it might have been Pelton, is the idea that Mid range shots are harder, but people who are very good at it that that's an incredibly useful skill that if your mid range shots are going to Lamarcus Aldridge or Chris Bosch or those guys, that increases your value It's when they go to guys who aren't good at shooting them that's the big problem and so you're you're kind of you're trimming the fat, but that doesn't mean that every shot in that range is fat it's just there are certain guys who it's a bad instinct for them
1: yeah, and i you know I tried to touch on this a little bit in this in the, what we know about shot selection that I wrote earlier this week, but you know, So I showed this, this graph of field goal percentage by distance for the entire league. And you can see that once you get beyond three feet, everything is, is goes in about 40% of the time. And then you get this bump. Uh, if you look at effective field goal percentage, you sort of get this bump in value when you get to the three-point line. But then when you look at a player like Dirk Nowitzki, it's completely different. And there are some some distances, you know, from 10 to 15 feet. Him taking a two-pointer is as efficient as a league average three-point shooter taking a, a three-pointer because he makes them at such a, a higher rate. And so the relative value of these shots is completely dependent on the context of your offense and your players. And And back to your point about who's taking them. When I was doing some work with XPPS, I think last season, my my shot selection metric, expected points per shot, one of the things that I noticed was a lot of the best offenses in the league were not necessarily the teams that had the best shot selection. So teams like the Spurs, the, uh, the Heat, and the Thunder, they all came out right around average in terms of the quality of their shot selection. Again, dealing in those absolutes, how many mid-range jumpers they take and and the the realization for me was those teams limit their mid-range jumpers to a reasonable amount and the players who take those mid-range jumpers make them at a really high rate it's LeBron it's Kevin Durant it's you know Tony Parker and so that's entirely different than having you know Nick Young take those shots or you know Brandon Jennings take those shots or Rodney Stuckey take those shots and so you know an efficient offense doesn't have to have a specific shot selection pattern it just has to have a shot selection pattern that works for its players and that's why
0: josh smith drives me crazy because (laughs) if you could do if you could tell josh smith hey the shots that you're good at you're really good at and the shots that you're terrible at you're terrible at and just do what you're good at his value would increase because it's reducing a negative and it would be it's it's guys like that that just kill me i mean there are moments when i covered monte ellis that he would do the same thing but monte makes more of those shots than josh smith yeah
1: yeah, it's hard to it's hard for me to wrap my head around Josh Smith because there's clearly I mean some of the blame is clearly his for agreeing to take those shots and not understanding his strengths and weaknesses, but some portion of that blame has to rest on the coaching staff for either encouraging him to, to take those kinds of shots or not, you know, sort of explicitly letting it be known that he should not be taking those shots. And so it's hard for me to draw the line there because, you know, he makes bad choices uh when he's shooting the basketball but the the coaching staff both in atlanta at times and certainly in detroit last season seems like they're completely complicit in it
0: i do not advocate anybody going to college for player development if they're a player but i do feel that josh is somebody who could have benefited from a coach saying hey this is really bad and an nba coach should do that but i feel like that might have actually happened if he had gone to college Yeah, it's
1: a possibility. The thing is, too, his game has changed so much. You know I remember when he came into the league, he was sort of billed as a shooting guard, or at least possibly as a shooting guard small forward kind of hybrid, and you know he kept growing and kept getting bigger and now he's clearly sort of a three four and so it's It's interesting to think about that development thing of you know if he had maybe uh- m- maybe not grown another inch or two and maybe not gained twenty or you know, twenty pounds or whatever um and he was a smaller slimmer wing player. You know, Maybe it would have been worth it to put more investment into that outside shooting as opposed to the inside. But it's, it's clear that he has a very sort of poor understanding of what makes him a special basketball player because um, it's his, his special talents, and he has a lot of them, but his special talents are criminally underutilized.
0: I agree with that, and that made me think of one of the things that I find the most interesting with basketball, and I'm probably cannibalizing a column that I haven't written yet and might not ever write, <laughs> so that's all right, is the idea, something that I've been fascinated with, and I, my best current example of this is Noah Vonleh, <laughs> and that's a guy who his role and his niche dramatically changes based on a height increase after he becomes a prospect. Yeah. So a lot of people, this is Anthony Davis. Yeah. Anthony Davis was a guard prospect. Was an interesting wing player and then became a big with those skills. And for whatever reason, we can't teach tall guys how to dribble. So he, he got that benefit before he got taller. And Vonleh, he was a guy who, when I was I was analyzing him as a high school guy, I went, oh, you know, his shot isn't good enough, his dribble isn't good enough. So I don't think he's going to make it as a wing player. But he had good heart and he had he was a good rebounder. Then all of a sudden, he's a four and maybe a five, and that completely changes his future, and it's a fascinating part of how the U.S. develops players that those changes happen fairly frequently with high-end talent.
1: Yeah, yeah. um, I'm trying to think. I know there's a few other examples. One of the funniest ones to me, especially in in light of the finals last year, was Boris Diaw, and I remember when he came into the league, he was pegged as a shooting guard, small forward hybrid, you know, and and (laughs) clearly he ended up sort of as a 4-5, and it's funny. I can't remember who – i can 't remember whose line this is, maybe Arturo galletti, but somebody somebody has a line about for Boris Diaw being a power forward was a lifestyle choice, and you know it's it 's the same kind of thing <laughs> like he his shooting and handle and passing are not elite as a wing player, but as a big, they are elite, and so it's it's having that that developmental time sort of before your body catches up with you. Yeah, it's it, it is interesting, and I, I feel like some of it is is part of this is maybe part of a, a bigger sort of blind spot in the coaching developmental whatever that we're constantly trying to sort of fit people into into these. Whatever, like these sort of defined roles, like for all the talk about the positional revolution or whatever, we still talk about players as point guards, shooting guards, small forwards, power forwards, and centers. And, and really positional revolution has been that we've sort of added combo guard, three and D wing and, and stretch four, you know? So really all, all we did in in sort of all that discussion is we've added, you know, another three positions, but we still, we still don't always sort of recognize players for their uniqueness and we are you know trying to to fit them into these boxes where maybe they don't belong
0: I think that's a great point and one of the soap boxes that I've been on for a while and you and I have actually never talked about it is I see positions as a defense only construct <laughs> and I think that I think that the way to think about it in terms of coaching is that positions are what who you defend and everybody should learn as much of the offensive skill set as they can yeah so you you, cause you get into these guys and and I think that one of the interesting test cases for that will be Giannis yeah. because Giannis can do a lot of different things. And I think what people lose sight of with these elite players is, Oh, you have to do that. And that's why I try to refer to guys as primary ball handlers, not point guards, because you can be six, seven, six, eight and run an offense. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see more of that than we have before. And I feel like it helps the, it, to me. It helps the conversation to think about just mentally. I mean, to think about it as those are two different things. So You can have a guy, Giannis might be this, I don't think his handle is good enough. He'll probably be a secondary or tertiary ball handler. But, you know, you can do it that way, and your position is who you defend, but that doesn't have to dictate your offensive role. I think we've seen guys like Dirk, LeBron, just completely throw that out the window. Durant is another one of those. I feel like Durant, you could do some different things with him, have him defend power forwards, kind of the have him defend stretch forwards, not really the banger Uh forwards. Just think about it less rigidly offensively and just run with it. And I also hope the U.S. FIBA team does that too because they have the talent to do it now too.
1: Well, it's funny because some of the teams that we think of as being really successful—I mean, probably the best example of this is the Spurs and the uh, as the Spurs and the Heat—is it seems like they deal with their players not in terms of positions but in terms of skills. And so when they're constructing a lineup, they're looking at a combination of specific skills they want on the floor, not who's the best point guard, who's the best shooting guard, who's the best small forward the best power forward. And so that's that's how you end up with people sort of shifting between these amorphous roles and you look at the heat lineup and often there aren't really positions. You know, there's just there's the wings and maybe one one tall guy who's gonna hang around the basket. You know, same thing with the Spurs with you know Patty Mills or Boris Dia. It was not you're gonna be our point guard, you're gonna be our power forward. It was here, here's what you can do and how can we put players around you so you only have to do what you're good at. Um, and you don't have to be less than satisfactory in these other sort of responsibilities that are inherent with your position. Cause we're not going to just think about you as, as a position. We're going to think about you as, as what you can do. And it's funny. One of the other people that just popped in my head was uh, Don Nelson, you know, who who sort of used to do this. I mean, some of his, his focus was on going small and, and pushing the pace, but you know, I used to think about his teams in the same way that it was not about five positions. It was about five players and let's, let's get their skills to sort of mesh
0: the other guy that i was thinking about in terms of unusual things like that is penny hardaway (laughs) in the sense that a lot of people like oh he's a big point guard well no maybe he was a two that should have had a point guard the traditional point guard responsibilities Mm -hmm. and i mean even magic i I think magic to me if you think about it the construct in that way he was probably he was probably a two most of the time he just ran the offense. yeah and then you get into interesting questions that if you wanted to embrace that then does Chris Paul become the best point guard of all time <laughs> or Stockton or Stockton or something else? Cause yeah. I think you can make an argument. Like if you put magic at the two, uh-huh. then you can do it that way. Obviously if you were to build a best five man team, I think you'd probably still have magic and Michael at the back. Yeah. Point. But it's funny how so many of those arguments are just based on how those positions were defined. I mean, Bill and also the other part with that, that I think about sometimes is, how time fits in. Bill Russell was a magnificent center for his era. I think it's widely agreed that he would probably be a four now. Yeah. So how do you how do you talk about that? You know, Tim Duncan would have been a center for. The first fifty-five plus years of the NBA. So when you're talking about him as the greatest power forward of all time, does that make sense in terms of the arc of the league? And yeah. it's it's a really strange discussion.
1: Yeah, you know those those positions we think about them as having rigid sort of descriptions, but uh, yeah, but I, I mean they're fluid and they're in some ways they're pretty abstract.
0: Tangent question that I wanted to ask you. I I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story about it afterwards, but. Would you personally support if they widen the court, having the three-point arc be an actual semicircle?
1: Uh, gosh, I don't know. To be honest, I've never even thought about it.
0: So, a story a couple years ago at media day, I was. It might have even been this year. I think it was. I think it was two seasons ago. I asked Stephen Curry that, Ugh. and at first he said, "No, that's that's a bad idea." And then he sat there for a second, and then he went actually, that'd probably be really good for me. Okay, I'm on board. Yeah. And and it, what it, the idea for me is basically that I think part of the reason that the system, the way the, the geometry of the floor right now is because the corner three is so easy. Yeah. And I think that if you change that, I think that could bring back the mid game to some point because you can't have guys camp in the same spots unless they get a lot better. Mm-hmm. And it, I just think it would be interesting – to see how it changes the way that the league plays. If you have these guys who have trouble on above-the-break threes but can hit corner threes, mm-hmm. either they have, they have to change their game somewhat. Yeah. And I think it would, it would definitely change it. You can make an argument, and smart people have. I've talked about this with way too many people. The, uh, the argument would be that it would change the game, but it just would basically take away the corner three. Yeah. And you can make an argument that, that, that that's a, a benefit to the game right now. But it's just – it would be a very different thing. I'd love to see it tried in international ball or something just to – to see how it would change the way that elite players
1: played. Yeah, I've, I'm maybe not the best person to talk to this because I'm generally of the opinion that I like the game the way it is now, and I'm not uh, I'm not dying for for changes. But the thing is, there are. I sometimes I feel like there's this reaction to. You know, I mean, like a lot. So a lot of analytics and a lot of the shot selection stuff is about taking advantage of inefficiencies or efficiency. So the corner three is inefficiency. You get an extra point, but it's closer than other things on the three point line, so it's easier to make. So that. That has a huge gravity, like you were talking about, the offensive geometry, the way teams play, the way teams are are angling to try and get those shots. So if you take that away, there will be some other sort of inefficiency that teams will, will play towards. Uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure what that would be, but I feel like, you, you know, then maybe it comes back to the free throw line where the free throw line is so uh, uh, absurdly valuable that that then maybe you go back, back to big men in the post and, you know, slashers trying to get to the lane, whatever it is. And so I'm I'm OK with the way the game is now and the and the, the corner three. And to be honest, I like I like the idea of knowing I I like the idea of there being an efficiency on the court that everybody sort of understands. And and obviously some teams are more committed to it than others, but I like that idea that I can watch a game and see – sort of like where that you know where that treasure chest is that everybody's trying to get to and it's so so the fact that that the corner three you know that this sort of quirk of the rule and the geometry of the court the arc bends there makes it this sort of special magical spot um yeah it 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 doesn't it doesn't really bother me but yeah i suppose if if the court was going to be wider it would make sense to 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 bend that arc and pop it out and, and see what else happens
0: yeah, I think you raised a really good point. We'll move on to the off season talk. We'll talk we'll talk about that. Let's start with the positive. What teams? Just thinking about it generally, you don't have to go team by team. What teams do you think? did a really good job or should look a lot better next year?
1: Well, obviously the Cleveland Cavaliers are going to look a lot better next year. Uh, it seems like that's a that's a, a done deal. I think uh, Lance Stevenson to the Hornets uh, is a is a big uh, pickup. I think uh, Omar Ajik to the Pelicans is going to be really good for Anthony Davis, and it's going to be good for their defense. I think sean sean livingston to the warriors is going to help a little bit for them you know i think chandler parsons in dallas um i don't think think he's going to do much for their defense and if they do um you know if they don't uh uh bring marion back which it sounds like they're not going to i think i think he will elevate their offense and he will make their defense potentially even worse so hopefully that that balances out for them
0: and also they lost Jose Calderon,
1: who yeah. is a very
0: a very important part of that. And again we were talking about positions, but having somebody to run your offense is still an important thing, whether or not it's the point guard.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, um uh, I've read some people who think Felton will be good for them. I find that hard to believe. He just has seemed so uncommitted to playing aggressive caring basketball for for such a long time that it's hard to imagine him sort of transforming himself but you know he he has some skills and and and, uh so i I think their offense will will still be really good next year what
0: i've been thinking about the last week or so is that the west i i think that we have a really good argument now to have the best 16 in because i think that the top 10 in the west now with the pelicans added to that is just going to be monstrous because New Orleans now they have Anthony Davis, who is already in the elite conversation. I, I even though people might not be talking about it, yeah. he's there, in my opinion. And uh, Sheik is a phenomenal player, mm-hmm. and they they just have they have a lot of talent now. Obviously, injuries are going to be a factor for everybody, but I think that the West now has ten teams that could be in the top four, maybe in the East. And the East got, the top four got deeper than it was before.
1: Yeah. I think I think the East got deeper too. You know, I think you're right that the the West is obviously still loaded and still has an edge, but it, it may not be as as uh, it may not play out to be a, as big as we'd think. Um, at least by records, um, you know, because the West will beat up on it on, on themselves. But you know, Cleveland all of a sudden, uh, you know, has a chance to jump to the top of the East. You know, I don't. Th- I think the Pacers might be a little bit worse next year, but they'll still they'll still be good. I think uh, you know the Hawks with a healthy um, Al Horford. I think they'll, they're they're going to be a lot better. They're going to be really good. I think the Heat, to be honest, losing LeBron. I think Roberts and Granger and Deng.
0: You know, obviously
1: uh even adding them together in a one player there's still no lebron but i think they'll still be they'll still be really good i think they could still potentially be a 50 win team uh, and the bulls getting paul gasol i think you know they uh again have a chance to sort of be the be uh, uh at the top there in the east I, th- I think the east the west is good and got better i think the east got a little bit better too although it always looks like that you reshuffle these pieces and everybody looks like they improved over the summer and then you know the games start and somebody collapses
0: one that you touched on in the first thing, and and then they're an Eastern Conference team that I'm really not high on as being a contender, but I think that what the Hornets did is great, uh-huh. because they added a player who was a very good basketball player, crazy basketball player, but a very good basketball player, at a position that they got very little production from, and it's, to me, it's kind of the reverse of what happened with Houston when they added Dwight Howard, like, mm-hmm. obviously, Dwight Howard's a wonderful player, I think he's the best center in the league, Yeah, but... He replaced Omer Sheik, who's a very good player. And since it didn't work to play them together, the, the overall upgrade wasn't as large. Yeah. Here, they're taking Lance Stevenson, who's a good basketball player, and they're putting him over a position that was horrendous uh-huh. last year. And also, a quick aside, that also makes them cutting Ben Gordon last year even more hilarious, that they cut a player to position that they needed all this production from, and yet he still gets $4.5 million. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. But, so the Hornets upgraded at a position of weakness and I think that's a really big difference and the other one like that is Cleveland. Cleveland's small forward position was just dead yeah. since LeBron left and so they took that huge negative and CJ Miles is is a fine player he played some too also <laughs> but to go from that to the best player in the sport is one of the, is another huge change. And yeah they have all these other weaknesses but they they upgraded without giving anything up except for Jared Jack, if you want to count that. Yeah. And, and they, they, and Tyler Zeller, I guess, but they, they did all that and they took a position of weakness to a position of extreme strength. And I always love it when a team does that.
1: Yeah. I think the Cavaliers are going to be a really interesting test case for sort of the idea of team construction. I mean, assuming that, that nothing else happens with Kevin Love and, and that sort of the team that the Cavaliers have right now is, is the team that they enter next season with. I think it'll be really interesting because on a, on a talent level. I think you could argue that they have as much talent as Miami did or possibly even more, uh, I mean, depending on how high you are in Irving and Waiters. So they have that talent, but it seems like the team is not constructed as well, uh, particularly in terms of their bigs being able to space the floor. You know, Veragiao has, has, has range, uh, but it's, it's not, you know, it doesn't go out to the three-point line and, and Tristan Thompson and, uh, as well. Joshua Riddell did a guest post at, at Nylon Calculus last week, just talking about how LeBron's, uh, the number of field goals that he attempted at the rim and his field goal percentage on shots at the rim was much lower when they didn't have floor spacing bigs out there. So like when he played with, when LeBron played with uh, Chris Anderson, he got to the rim a little bit less, made a little bit less. And, uh, you know, the, the fact was a little bit smaller with Haslam because Haslam had, you know, had 15 foot range. But, um, you know, if, if LeBron is playing a lot of minutes with Thompson and Varajao, all of a sudden that lane's a lot more clogged than, than what he was dealing with in Miami. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if the, if the Cavaliers can, can sort of just, Muscle and talent their way to the top, or if uh, you know, or if they have to sort of go through a a, a phase of remaking themselves the way that he did when they when they got LeBron.
0: That's an excellent point, and the other one that factors in in terms of watching it from the side is if Miami's biggest changes are the swapping of LeBron for Dang and adding in McRoberts and adding in Granger, <laughs> then they will be a test case in the reverse. They'll be a test case of how big of an impact is LeBron on that because obviously the, almost every player on the heat is getting worse with age all the important guys yeah. so you think about that versus upgrading the non-lebron talent that if you put that is relatively close it's not obviously the same but if it's that will be a test case and also one of the things that i find most compelling about the league as we're going in is there are a lot of teams that are pretty good that have really good coaches, mm-hmm. and so I always like seeing that's something that I, I've told people before is whenever I do the I do an original estimation of how I think the league's going to look, I then think about guys like Rick Carlisle mm-hmm. and I say, okay, he's he's going to push this team up to the top of their tier or maybe into another tier, and it will be fun for for me at least to see Spolstra yeah. to see whether. Because there are some guys who are great at, at handling really high-level talent. I think that's one of the things with Phil Jackson. I think he deserves a ton of credit for that. Yeah. But it is a very different thing to elevate a pretty good team to be very good, whether we're talking regular season success or postseason mm-hmm. success. And we're, I think we're getting into a point where a lot – obviously, you know, Popovich has a great team and they have all that, but a lot of the next group of what people think are great coaches – Have that, and I think Vogel's in that group too. You know, Vogel, we will have a much better idea of how good a coach he is, and Thibodeau too, because Thibodeau's talent changed dramatically. Yeah. We will have a very good idea of whether they deserve the hype that they've gotten, and I think they do, Uh but we'll have a test case for that. And I think that that's always nice because you like to see what happens when a team looks dramatically different and what does that what does that mean does the team get better and then there're also all the off the court stuff with lance and yeah. everything else with the pacers but that as a basketball nerd we're going to get some really intensely fun test cases this year
1: yeah I, you know the the thing with the heat and with spolster is they have to figure out now without lebron they have to figure out how to bend the defense because they still they are still loaded with shooters i mean granger uh, had a tough end of the year last year after coming back from injury but you know i still think he's a really good shooter McRoberts is a good outside shooter you know and bosh and cole and and uh not sure what they'll end up doing with chalmers but you know they still have the basic framework of the team that they have so the question is can wade bend the defense um you know even close to the way lebron did because i don't think Deng's gonna really do that job for them yeah and and going back to the pacers too you know uh, i wrote a thing for bleacher report today sort of about how his absence puts the pressure on them and it'll be really interesting to see i think the biggest the biggest indicator for me of the type of coach vogel is is whether they come into next year with pretty much the same system and they just try and replace Lance with a mix of of Stuckey and uh, with a mix of Stuckey and Solomon Hill and CJ Miles, and uh, maybe playing George Hill off the ball a little bit more with with Stuckey and if they do that I think that's sort of a strike against him because that system obviously sort of ran them into the ground last year even with Lance and now they're trying to sort of cobble that together from some parts who are maybe not quite as talented but even if they get off to a rough start, even if the gears are grinding, if they come into next year with sort of a new, a new offensive identity, some sort of new framework for how they're going to score points, I think that's, that's a sign that he's someone who is paying attention to the pieces that are around him and how to get the most out of them. And again, it might be a rough start because they've got a lot of rebuilding to do um, in terms of that system, but if they come in at least trying to be different, I think that's a good sign for them.
0: Yeah, it definitely would be. And I think that what makes Lance such a hard guy to replace is that he has an unusual skill set and they couldn't get the same pieces in one guy with him. So they'll they'll ha- not only is the offensive system going to be interesting. I'm going to be fascinated to see how they, let's say it's Rodney Stuckey, are they going to do the same things defensively? Because Rodney Stuckey is not, he's one of the worst defensive players in the league. So in terms of, can you make him better? Because that's one of the things good teams do. Yeah. And can you work that in and, and handle that? Because I think one of the things that made the Pacers so strong defensively was that they had quality defen- defenders at every position. And I'm intrigued to see how that how that works if that's not true.
1: Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I would say sort of in favor of Stucky is that, Lance was an absolutely atrocious defender two years ago, and he, you know, that system makes the responsibilities for those wing players really simple, you know. Stucky probably doesn't give them as many opportunities for cross-matching, you know. Um, by the end of that Miami series, sometimes the Pacers were playing Stevenson on LeBron and playing George on Wade, and they felt like they were getting more added value that way, and George was able to freelance more and play passing lanes and create turnovers and stuff, and obviously I don't think they'd be able to do that with Stucky, but, um, you know, for the most part, against a team that's not Miami, Stuckey's responsibility is to pinch down on pick and rolls and recover to shooters, and so those those responsibilities are, are sort of really pared down. And so he he may find that in this system he's a little bit uh, things are a little bit easier on him than they were uh, in Detroit. And then also, you know, I think C.J. Miles is is a is an average or maybe slightly plus defender, but offensively he's he's mostly just a catch and shoot player. I don't think he has any kind of, um, I don't think he has the the off-the-dribble game that Stuckey does.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true, and I think what I've pinpointed for a long time is the issue with the Pacers is that they don't have a guy who can consistently create for other people, Yeah. and I think that it's a little bit surprising to me that they didn't get anybody at any position that does that, because I think that's what, that was their biggest need. Stuckey can create for himself, and he can do a little bit for others, but that's I consider that a weakness. But I wanna move on. The other team that I think is a really fun test case for this year is the Raptors. Yeah. Because they're largely the same team that they were. Mm-hmm. But they're almost everybody on that team is before their prime, so they should get better. And also their division basically imploded behind them <laughs> because the you know, the Nets lost Paul Pierce yeah. basically for nothing. And the Knicks are still a little ways away, though I think I think the Knicks could end up being better, though they have zero rim protection that I can think of offhand. Yeah, and and then you know every other team, the Celtics and all that, they're really far away. But uh, again, divisions don't matter a lot. But I think the Raptors are a team that could be. I don't think they're in the top conversation, but they could be in that next group and be a team that nobody wants to play in the playoffs, despite how good the other teams are in that mid tier in the East.
1: Yeah, you know they were really good in the second half of last season, and and. It's easy to see them hitting that level again, getting above that level, sort of jumping up into the next tier in the East. It seems like they need a little bit more from Terrence Ross. They would need a little bit more from Valanchunas and maybe DeMar DeRozan to either, you know, it's getting kind of late in the conversation for him, but to find a jump shot or a three-point shot or to sort of manipulate his game a little bit so that less of it is sort of pull up stuff in the mid range. Um, you know, if he's at the rim a little bit more drawing fouls a little bit more, um, I think that could really sort of buoy their offense, but yeah, they the scenario where they jump to the next tier requires everybody getting a little bit better. And so, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly plausible, but, but I, I think probably, um, I don't know. I feel like the Hawks and the Pacers and the Bulls and uh, the Cavs and maybe even the Heat are still probably ahead of them.
0: Interesting. The other thing that I've been thinking about, because when you think about how teams did and you think about if they got better or worse than last season, Uh the other factor in that is, was last season, if you want to call it representative, and so what I was thinking about that is the Blazers and the Grizzlies. Yeah. The Grizzlies were an incredible team when they were healthy last year. They were really, really, really good, Uh and they they just didn't have a healthy team the entire year, whereas the Blazers, everything went right for them. Yeah. And so some of that is hard to project because you never know who's going to get hurt and anything like that. But at the same time, I feel like people are sleeping on Memphis because they have an incredible foundation. They have an incredible core. And the pieces that were horrible for them, they, all they have to do is just kind of keep throwing more stuff at it and hope that something sticks because last year nothing did. You know, if they can get, if Quincy Pondexter can be alive, if they can get anything from the small, from the small forward position, if Vince Carter can take that role, and like because Courtney Lee was was interesting for them last year. I think that he he was part of the answer. But Memphis is a team that can do that. And at the other side, Portland was a great story. I love watching them. Terry Stotts is an amazing coach, but it, I think that they're one of those teams that if any of their key players misses any extended time, I'm not sure how they replace them.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think the wild card for Portland is CJ McCollum because um, he he struggled once he came back and he ne- never sort of really got his stride. But I think he has the potential to be a real difference maker for them. I mean, he could he, he could have a really solid season for them and that could help cover up for some of their depth issues and things like that. As far as the Grizzlies, I think they could be really good too. And I think one of the things that always intrigues me when I look at the Grizzlies is their is their youth. That there's this sort of layer of of young players behind the established stars who who, you know, are just sort of waiting for a chance. Like John Luer was so good for them last year when Gasol was out. I mean, obviously not as good as Gasol. The team was worse off having Gasol out, but he he John Luer looked like a regular contributor, somebody who could really make a difference for them. And then he kind of faded out of the rotation once Gasol was back but um, you know if they can find in a, a way to work in pieces like lure you know and then they've got these two young guards jamal franklin who it'll be his second season and jordan adams who i know a lot of the statistical draft models you know had rated near the top so working in some of those pieces behind them i think there's the possibility for them to to sort of have another gear that i don't think people are seeing
0: i definitely think there's another gear there and the other the topic that i want to discuss with you is as a, as somebody who covers the Warriors and as somebody who wants them to do well for selfish reasons, it is mind-boggling for me that they seem to be reluctant to do the Kevin Love trade that is rumored that basically involves a core of Klay Thompson and David Lee mm-hmm. for Kevin Love, and let's say they have to eat some money, whether it be long-term money in Kevin Martin or short-term money in Barea or both. Yeah, that There's this strange thing, and what, the thing that I wanted to talk about first before we get into Kevin Love is I've noticed in certain corners of the internet in particular that there's this strange bias against guys who aren't great defenders. It's like this, this thing of, oh, somebody's a great two-way player versus they're an elite offensive player. You see it with Harden, too. Yeah, yeah, Harden's a horrible defender most of the time. Yeah. Love, is, love isn't that bad. Love isn't as bad. I think his reputation is a little overwrought. But if you're a top ten offensive player, that is an incredible value as well.
1: Yeah, and when you put, you know, when you put a maybe a slightly negative defensive value or even a significantly negative defensive value together with the offensive value that somebody like Harden or, or Love provides, it's still a huge net positive, you know, like, and sometimes even greater than somebody who's, you know, slightly above average in both directions. And I think you're right. Harden is a disaster defensively. And I think it's it's more related to to effort and attention than anything else. But I think Love is somebody who could be coached out of some of his bad defensive tendencies. I wrote something last year about how ridiculously often – he defended shots at the rim with his hands at his sides and you know I know people will point at that and say oh well he's he's waiting for a miss and he's you know trying to pad his rebounding numbers and stuff like that but you know there's a huge uh, defensive margin statistical margin to be made up just by having him be more more active contesting shots and I think that that's something that a new coach in a new system could could get across to him and I think that would wipe away a lot of his his negative sort of defensive value but yeah I, I, I was surprised that the Warriors were not willing to part with Clay Thompson in exchange for Kevin Love.
0: And the other part about that is that the power forward position is one that you have somebody playing behind them, ideally. Uh-huh. You have a center, and the Wolves have done no favors by having Nikola Pekovic there defensively. Nikola Pekovic is a good player, that's just not what he's good at. Yeah. Whereas the Warriors have a very good track record of having a bad defensive power forward playing next to Andrew Bogut they've been doing it right now and it works out pretty well you you can sandwich a, a power forward to me you can sandwich them with defenders and you 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 don't get killed as much and i also think that With coaching, I think Love is a more correctable defensive player than David Lee is. Yeah. I think that they're similar in certain ways. I think they're gunning for certain things. But I think that Love isn't as ingrained. And I think that we've seen it a little bit in his international play. It's that I think he can move to another gear defensively if he has a reason for it. And I think playing with other defensive players and playing on a team that actually has a chance to make the playoffs. Yeah. I think that those things, for a guy who people forget is 25 years old. Yeah. That that those things can still be there. And, I mean... I'm trying to think about how old Taj Gibson was when he came into the league, but I don't think he was much younger than 25. You know, he's still really young. And there's also this this strange thing that you know when a guy that the conversation with Clay and with Kevin Love is that Kevin Love is only a year and a half older than Clay Thompson. Yeah. So people are like, oh, Clay is going to get so much better, and he's improved a lot. I give him a lot of credit for that, and I've watched him a lot, and I've seen him grow. And I think I think he was under. I think he was asked to do too little for the Warriors, and so he can do that. And if he goes to the – if he went to the Wolves, he'd have to do a lot of it. Yeah. But there's this strange concept that one – that's because of how long they've been in the league that certain guys are young and certain guys are old. And I like to think about it more in terms of their age than in terms of how long they've been in the league.
1: And as far as I know, every uh, every sort of statistical projection system, they use – their sort of progressive projections, uh, their development curves are all based on age, not years of experience. I can't think. Yeah. I can't think of anybody who uses age of who uses an age of an experience or uh, years of experience based curve. Everybody uses an age based curve. Yeah, I just I, I think I, back to the idea that we were talking about a little bit earlier with replacing a position of need. You know. Uh, Love is maybe not such an enormous upgrade compared to David Lee, but there are just a couple key things between, uh, difference between Lee and Love that would make such a huge difference for the Warriors, specifically the fact that Love's range goes all the way out to the three point line and how that opens up the interior of the floor for them, whereas Lee's kind of everything's 18 feet and in. And, and I, I, I mean, that could just have such an enormous effect on Curry's ability to get in the lane and Thompson's ability to get in the lane and, you know, even Harrison Barnes, you know, to, to get back into that place where he's using his post up game offensively more regularly.
0: The other part of Love on the Warriors is that he he's, he would be the only other offensive player that really has a gravity. Mm-hmm. Clay Thompson is a very good player at catch and shoot, and he does that he does those kind of things well. He hasn't been asked to do anything else. Maybe he'll get better at that. But Love allows when Curry is on the floor and off the floor for there to be another player that the defense has to pay a lot of attention to, uh-huh. and that's a very different thing. And I think that's going to be the be other big test for Miami is that we saw last year with when LeBron sat and Paul George just put a blanket over Dwayne Wade and it was just over that at a certain point even the best teams need to have those guys that you know that that the defense pays attention to and everything and that's part of the reason the Spurs are so amazing uh-huh. is that they have so many different guys that you can do that so you have the combination of the guys that teams have to pay attention to and then the guys that you can't lose yeah and and so one of the one of the ways that that make the Warriors better because what we saw last year is when Curry sat they were a tire fire offensively because they had no one else who could do that and so to have somebody else who can who can do that maybe you know the team isn't as as effective but you can do that and that's also why he would be such a huge advantage for for Cleveland if Cleveland can trade for Kevin Love is that it gives a third guy because they also have Kyrie. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're asking Kyrie to do less, I think he's going to become monstrous. And if you're telling Kevin Love, we will always have somebody on the floor with you that can run the show. Yeah. If it's LeBron and Kyrie, that's incredible. And not only that, Ricky Rubio, I'm still a huge Ricky Rubio fan, even though we can't shoot. Kyrie and LeBron, as as complete offensive players, are very different than Ricky Rubio. Yeah. And to have to be able to have it, so okay, you know, you're going to have reliable shooting from the other perimeter positions. And I'm really excited if Cleveland gets him for the idea of Kevin Love playing center with them and going to a system offensively somewhat close to what Miami did last year.
1: Yeah, and I think that might be important for the Cavaliers. You know, we were talking about their space and concerns earlier. Yeah, and and I think that
0: depending on who they would have to give up in the trade, the other guy who that I think would be a huge benefit for is Anthony Bennett if they could keep him. Yeah. Because if you could play a a 3-4-5 of LeBron, Bennett, and Love, there would be defensive flaws, of course, but if you did that, let's say five to ten minutes a game, I don't know how you defend that. Yeah. I I, I just don't know. It's possible, you know, that it'll be easier than I think. But mm-hmm. if you're saying if you're saying okay, who are you going to put your center on? Are, are you going to put your center on Kevin Love? Kevin Love, who can hang out, who can hang out, even shoot above the break threes? Mm-hmm. Are you going to put him on Anthony Bennett, who while he's not even close there, he has a decent handle for his size? his hopeful, hopefully thinning size. And I, I just, when you, one of the things that I think gets lost in the shuffle a lot, and I think it's true with the elite defensive players too, is that I feel like there's a ratcheting effect of those truly elite players on everybody else. And I'm legitimately excited to see how that works and also to see how much Pau Gasol has left in the tank to see if he can have that kind of impact on the Bulls. Yeah. Because I think there's a distinct possibility that Thibodeau is a good offensive coach and that we, he just hasn't had the talent to do it. Yeah, and,
1: I, I agree. Their systems are, are not always simplistic out of, out of choice. They're simplistic out of this is what I have to work with. And if I make it any more complex, it's going to blow up in my face.
0: And I love Miritich, too. I think that he could be a very good player for them. I think that there's a strange thing in terms of their that their t- their roster construction. They still have a lot of flaws on the perimeter, mm-hmm. but they have they just have a lot more talent now. Yeah. And if you can if you can just do things with that, and also I think they have talent that Mark Jackson talked a lot about how good players can play together even if you don't have everything together, which is in- interesting considering his offensive system, <laughs> but. I think that that might be closer to true when you have Pau Gasol and you have Yokim Noah, who are both incredibly good passers and who both know the game so well, that what you're doing with them, depending on how they use them, and I think that they'll play them together somewhat, but I also think that it's a really cool idea to just have one of them on the floor at all times as well yeah. and just say, okay... We're going to have Derrick Rose as much as he can play, but we're going to have a really smart, really talented offensive player on the floor at all times at another position. Yeah. And that's something that's something that the Spurs do. That's something that I think Cleveland tried to do as much as humanly possible. And it's also something that is surprising to me that, that OKC doesn't do as much because of the way that they use their sub-rotations. Yeah, That to just have that to say, okay, you know, we're not going to be as good when Kevin Durant sits, but at least we're going to have enough there to make sure that we're going to be dangerous. And I that the other big question to me, the test case that is the same team is Oklahoma City. That they're a magnificent team in terms of their talent, and their ceiling is incredible. But will they will they go to a crunch time lineup that heavily involves Stephen Adams, who I think is vastly superior to Kendrick Perkins already, yeah. and should be getting a whole hell of a lot better? And but the other question with them is. How are we going to know it? Because they could have an amazing season and still lose to the Spurs, no harm, no foul. You know, that's just – that's that's the crazy part about this league is that they could have that, you know, that Utah Jazz losing to the Bulls kind of season where they're really, really, really good. They just weren't the best.
1: Yeah. And there's yeah. no shame in that. Well, it's funny for the Thunder because even though <laughs> I feel like usually you sort of see this with, with uh, championship teams and they obviously haven't won a title but they're sort of in this place where the regular season does or the results of the regular season, I feel like don't matter anymore. You know, home court in the playoffs is nice, but they're to this place where racking up wins, racking up a huge point differential, you know, putting the fear of God into teams, you know, putting up huge individual numbers for Durant and Westbrook, all that's been done and it doesn't matter. And it hasn't gotten them any closer to where they, where they want to be. And so this season is the whole regular season is an 82 game experiment for them to figure out how are we going to beat the Grizzlies, how are we going to beat the Spurs, how are we going to beat the Rockets, how are we are going to beat the Clippers. Um, and and I mean, and that's what it is is they have to figure out answers to those questions within the 82 games. And as long as they're in the playoffs, and 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 uh, I, I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters if they win 48 games or 58 games. I think what, I mean, as long as they make the playoffs, but what matters to them is, is starting to figure out the answers to those questions. And I don't think they've, I don't think they've ever approached the regular season that way. You know, I think they've always approached the regular season the same way the Pacers did last year. It was like, we got to make a statement. We got to win as many games as we can. We got to go into the playoffs at the top and let people know that we're the top dogs. And, uh, you know, I I don't think any of that matters anymore.
0: I think that's, a really good point, and I, when Steve Kerr had his, had his introductory press conference, I asked him about that, basically, you know, that the Spurs use it as a test case, and they play their guys so Little Mints, and he's like, well, that's a luxury that you get when you're really, really good, yeah. and the Thunder are really, really good, but they haven't used that luxury yet, yeah. and I think that, as you said, that's going to be a, a, a hugely important thing for them, and I think we'll know this season whether they need, whether they need a coaching upgrade, but be, because, at some point, as you said, it's all about the playoffs, and if you don't know what you have, and you haven't really experimented with that, then I think that, that if you're as good as they are, then that, that's what makes the regular season a failure, not your record. Okay. The other team that we haven't talked about a ton that I'm interested in your thoughts on is the Clippers. Because they're probably going to be pretty similar, as, similar to what they were, but the other huge point that nobody's talking about with that is, them is that if the ownership change goes through, which as of now it looks reasonably likely yeah. that Donald Sterling is going to do Donald Sterling things, is that they're about to have an owner who is willing to spend whatever it takes for this team to be really good. And while they are hard-capped because of the way they signed Spencer Hawes, I feel like there's this potential for them to add a a useful piece or two and also another summer with Doc Rivers and everything else. I think it's going to be a huge, uh, potentially huge season for them, even though they still might not be as good as the Spurs and the Thunder.
1: Yeah. And to be, I mean, people might laugh at this, but I think Spencer Hawes is huge for them. He is a huge, huge piece. The fact that at his size, he can go out and shoot from the outside is, is a really big deal for them. Um, it's something that they didn't really have last year. And, you know, obviously the the defense suffers, especially if he's on the floor with Griffin, but, being able to put him out, run him out there for a couple minutes a night, and break up the the Jordan Griffin uh, combination and and space the floor is going to be uh, is going to make an enormous difference for them. And then hopefully, you know, Dudley finds what he had in Phoenix and can get that back, and Reddick's health healthy again. But I think that some of what they need is health, some of what they need is sort of continuity. But they're kind of the same way too. I think they need to. They need to figure out they've figured out how to be really good. Now they need to figure out how to be really good against everybody. How are they going to beat the Spurs? How are they going to beat the Thunder? How are they going to beat the Grizzlies? Um, You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like that, that figuring out how, how we can be really good is, is that first step for a team. And once you're past that now, it's now we've got to figure out how to how to uh, exploit those little tiny advantages that we need to to beat all of our nemesis.
0: Yeah, and I think the Spencer Hawthorne thing also goes back to what we've talked about at various points in the podcast of upgrading a huge weakness. Their depth outside of Griffin and, and DeAndre Jordan at the big man spots was horrendous. Uh, it's fun to think about Spencer Haas for me because I was in college at UCLA when he was at UW, and so I got to see him a lot. And and the joke that I always had with him – I can't say the nickname because it's magnificently offensive <laughs> – but the, the gist of it was that he was good at everything that didn't involve contact. Yeah. And – while some people see that as a negative and in some ways it was, Uh it was also a positive because that means you're good at a lot of different things. And what's been fun about his NBA career is that that has expanded to a three point shot. Yeah. And so it's, he's good at all of these really unusual things. He's an underrated passer. He has a a surprisingly large amount of post moves for, for a guy like him. He's slow as all hell, Uh but he can do other things. And I feel like doc rivers could do a great job of figuring out what he's good at. It might take, it might take four or five months. Yeah, you know, it might take a, it might take a while, but if they can do that and they can use him, and also the other factor with that is that offensively, we talked about the idea with positions. If you if you're a team, let's say like Memphis that plays two traditional big men, you could I think get away with playing Spencer Hawes as a, a defending power forward. Yeah. And while I don't think you want to do it for against, you know, teams that have power forwards who can dribble and kind of, you know, the, the new era Anthony Davis force, yeah. there are certain teams that you can do it. And I also think DeAndre Jordan, he's a great anchor. I would love to see him defend some of those power forwards because he's super athletic for his size. Yeah, I, If they if they go really outside the box when they need to, their, their talent at, at the other spots is so incredible. And the other thing that – West Coast media, I've, I rail along with them, is I want to see Jamal Crawford and J.J. Reddick play together. Yeah. Because they're their two best swingman guys. So while obviously it leads to a lot of potential pitfalls and everything else, that would make them almost impossible to defend, in my opinion. You have two creators in, in Paul and Crawford. You'd have Reddick, who can create a little bit for himself, but is also just an assassin when everybody else creates for him, and who's super active. Yeah. And you'd have two good screeners in Griffin and Jordan who can also just – the other thing about that is all all of the four guys that are – other than DeAndre Jordan are good passers. Yeah. So you can – so in terms of if you want to call it Lob City or whatever you want to call it, those guys would ju- – I think that lineup, that five-man lineup would just be awesome. It might not beat – you know, it might not beat the best five-mans everywhere else, but I think that the other thing that that lineup does is it – Runs bad teams off the floor, which the Clippers have no problem doing. Yeah, they, they, they yeah, the Clips have been floating around a little bit the last couple of days of the back-to-back windmills when they were mauling the Sixers. They were already up like sixty to twenty, but the Clippers are a team that I saw lose too many games that they shouldn't have lost last year, and I think that that could be a big test for them. Is we talked about how they need to do it as an experiment, but also if they can prop themselves up and be in the third seed at that point and then they don't have to worry about that and then they can really experiment. It would be a lot of fun to see.
1: Yeah. And back to the, the Hawes thing, he's, you know, he's another one of those guys that we think about in terms of, of years of experience. Cause he's been in the league so long. I think he, he only played one year of college, but he's only 26. He's only a year older than Griffin and he's the same age as Jordan. And he's, been wallowing to some degree the past couple of years uh, on teams who sort of have uh, don't have a lot of vested interest in helping him uh, be the absolute best and, and most complete player he could be. So I think there's even room for Haas to grow into a into a, a an even better more complete player. But um, yeah, I think I think the Clippers have a lot of different have a, di- a lot of different lineup combinations. And yeah, I I think it's it's about figuring out exactly what works and what scenarios and what context for them. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, uh, Yeah, I really appreciate it, thanks for having me and uh, yeah, we'll do it again soon
0: thanks again to Ian Levy for taking the time to come on, you can read him at his new site Nylon Calculus, that's NylonCalculus.com and you can follow him on Twitter at Hickory High H-I-C-K-O-R-Y H-I-G-H for all of the other places he writes, there are a lot of them and his work is excellent everywhere very excited about Nylon Calculus I've really enjoyed what I've seen from them so far and The tone that they've set is something that I feel feel like is needed in the basketball world, and that's no slight on anybody else. There are a lot of great analytics sites on the internet, but I feel like there's the possibility that they provide a voice that is very useful and constructive, and I like, you know, we talked about glossaries and things like that. I think that there is a place for that in, in the world, and I hope that some of you enjoyed that part of it. I, it's always fun to talk with them. There are a lot of teams that I'm already looking forward to, and it's crazy because there's so much more left in the off season. And the other thing that I'm personally really looking forward to is the they're calling it the FIBA World Cup now, but I still think of it as the FIBA World Championships because I am a huge fan of international basketball. I think that there are certain things that they do beautifully well. I like watching the nationalism. I'm a big fan of the World Cup as well. And also, I like the goaltending rules a lot better, which is something. And the shorter three-point line is definitely compelling, though I, I support the NBA line more than I support the Feeble line for for the NBA for that quality of talent. But I hope you'll enjoy that. I'm planning on trying to do some World Championship stuff. I haven't figured out exactly what that will be. The other thing that I'm working on now, and it looks like it will happen, so I'll mention it here, is that I the way that I want to do the rest of the off-season, though I will still have interviews like this one with Ian Levy when they are, when appropriate, is that I want to do a combination off-season review and season preview for each division. I feel like that's a good way to do it, and so now one of the things that I am working on is recruiting people to be a part of one or more of those, and... If you have anybody that you think knows a certain area well or that you've enjoyed listening to on the podcast before, feel free to let me know. You can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Or you can send me an email at Daniel.LaRue at RealGM.com. I will read it. I will respond to it. And it, 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 it's a fun process, and it's a, sometimes it's a little bit harder in the offseason because that's when a lot of people, especially if they cover the league, deal with their other obligations but you know we have a wide time frame I'm hoping to get all six divisions done the next couple months so that's not a it's not an immediate thing it's not when you are doing draft work or you're doing playoff stuff and it has to come out quickly so thank you so much for listening thanks to all of you who've been responding to me I also appreciate it you know when people take the time to comment on episodes or they take the time to you know even tell me that they if something isn't working with the tech I do appreciate that because that allows us to figure out what's going on and to work with it. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks for taking the time. Take care and make it a great day.